Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode features Laura Zelliger. Laura and I had a great talk about cultural immersion, life changes, and pushing through fear in life on the Fearless Formosa expedition through Taiwan. So enjoy today's episode with Laura Zelliger. Hi, Laura. Thanks for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hello there. How are you? Excellent. It is a fantastic day here. So you are the youngest woman to earn the ACA Level 5 Open Water Instructor Certification. So what got you started paddling and led you down the path toward high-level certification in such a short time? Well, so I, I've always been aquatic, so to say. I grew up in coastal Georgia up until I was 11 years old. And um, part of being there was just swimming. I was obsessed with swim team at an early age, like a lot of kids uh, whose parents are like, oh, we need an activity to keep them busy for the summer. <laughs> I did swim team since I was, you know, able to swim even as early as like four up until, you know, high school. So I was always swimming in the water, going into the, the river because Savannah, Georgia is on the um, intracoastal waterway. And then we also have the, the coast on the Atlantic Ocean. And then that just evolved to playing with sit on tops. <laughs> so a lot of my early kayaking, I like the joke was with the boat upside down and <laughs> standing on the boat. <laughs> um, and then I got into, uh, when I was in high school, my family moved to Seattle, Washington, um, which is like the polar opposite of Savannah, Georgia. Maybe even more would be Alaska, but it's on the way. And there, my, my high school had a, a really awesome outdoor program. And that's where, I, you know, we turned the boats right side up and actually learned how to paddle them. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what really got me hooked was, I remember when I was 15, we did a, a multi-day, multi-week actually trip to Southeast Alaska. And after that trip, I was absolutely hooked and came home for the summer and 15 going on 16. That's when my dad was like, okay, it's time for you to experience the workforce and get a summer job. And uh, all I wanted to do was be a kayaking guide. And so even though I did high school in Seattle, I would spend summers with my dad. My, my parents have been divorced for most of my life. So it was, you know, summers with my dad, school year with my mom in Seattle. And so I would be in Tybee Island for most of uh, the summer. And through luck and just happenstance, I only applied for a job at Sea Kayak Georgia, not knowing that it was much more than just guiding they had a really full-fledged and well-respected sea kayaking program on top of that and so that summer and the following summers I you know guided and and that's where I also got exposed to becoming an instructor too so I know you've had Dale Williams on the podcast before and yes. uh, listen to that episode so Dale was technically my first boss all right you had a great mentor <laughs> so, Yes. Oh, yeah. 
along with many other mentors who are still there at Seacrack Georgia, like Marsha Henson and Ronnie Kemp and a whole host of really incredible paddlers that were just very patient with me and very generous. So that was that early exposure and I just couldn't get enough from there. Went to college in North Carolina at a small school called Davidson College and there was also a really wonderful outdoor program there and that's where I got into whitewater canoeing and whitewater kayaking on top of becoming um, a sea kayaking instructor when I was in college. Yeah, you've really taken a, quite a multidisciplinary approach to paddle sports. Yes, I think it's getting worse every year. <laughs> Never <laughs> like this year, I really, and last year, I really got more into wave ski surfing. And I just need to start, you know, like Tipper Gore says, like, just say no to adopting a new paddle sport. <laughs> Well, too much. <laughs> every one of those, uh, every one of those different disciplines, though, has to make you better in the other disciplines. You know, it definitely is true. It's there's a lot of crossover. I found, especially the more I do surf kayaking and wave ski, and and really push my my boundaries on the white water front. Just you know, that that tolerance for white water, <laughs> those lines of white water coming at you, but. It's it's hard to have the time to want to to feel like you're really investing in each discipline if you know you're you're trying to to balance your time. It's it's starting to become something that I have to get more strategic about, but a fun problem to have. <laughs> well, so you and Kelly Marie Henry um, took your experience and, and focused it on sea kayaking and did a six week trip to Taiwan called Fearless Formosa. So tell us about that trip. So that was um, part of, you know, realizing that I was on the precipice of turning 30 and thinking back to my 18-year-old self and you know, even a little bit later and, and what my, my goals would have been and how you envision your life to be at that stage, you know. I think a lot of people reflect back and think like, huh, you know, would my childhood self be proud of where I am today or excited. And I'm not speaking for Kelly because I'm sure, and I know that she has some, some different reasons for wanting to pursue this trip. But for me, it was, huh, you know, I think I had been working at these small startups and getting down the path of working in technology at, in, in San Francisco. And I, was gaining a lot of skills, but increasingly I found that I was just like spending most of my life in front of a computer and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my gosh, I never sent that email. <laughs> just realizing that I was drifting further and further away from maybe a path that uh, was more in line with what I, what I wanted to be spending every day doing. And a lot of that was being on the water. And so I remember it was a particularly slow and kind of boring week at a startup I was working at. And uh, a lot of these companies focused on um, tax tracking. And I was having to write a lot of content about 1099 tax taxes and just feeling the sense of 
malaise. <laughs> like, <laughs> where am I going? Yeah, that sounds riveting. <laughs> yes, really. Um, and I was even, you know, it's not a great situation when you're trying to slip like tax jokes and then all of this is getting edited by a tax attorney because you don't want the company to be sued and then they just like <laughs> redline all of your attempts at a joke and you're like, really? Can I not have anything? And I just remember texting Kelly and just thinking, you know what we need? Because she and I were already good friends and taught kayaking classes together. And I was like, let's circumnavigate something. And I remember like secretly finding a corner of the office and then just looking at all these islands <laughs> and thinking, what, what could be doable? And like, how much time could I take off without completely having to quit my job like where well, how much negotiating room do I have here and what would be safe and feasible and after college I, I lived in China for two years and I studied speaking Chinese and Chinese culture and started to look around China the mainland and then also Taiwan and then I looked even more closely and you know I said oh my gosh Taiwan is actually pretty feasible for potentially circumnavigating in under a month <laughs> and uh i texted her kelly thinking she would say you know absolutely not and i think i just got her in a moment where maybe she was feeling a tinge of the same sort of malaise i was and uh she was like yes let's do this and um i'm the kind of person that throws out a lot of different ideas you know, just freestyling and scheming. And then Kelly's the kind of person that makes it happen. And so <laughs> she made it happen. And, and it was like, you know, within the span of 10 minutes, she's like, here's what I'm thinking where we could start. Here's a, an adventure grant we can apply for. And we, we started moving down the direction of actually planning it. And I think it still exists now. Maybe you know about it, John. It's the Hobke grant. They're these really cool keychains that have little canoes and kayaks, and they're a great teaching tool if you're trying to demonstrate something because they're like perfect pocket size little kayaks. And uh, apparently, all the proceeds from these keychains go to fund this grant. And we, we were like, okay, we're going to apply for this grant. It goes to a public vote. And if we win this grant, we're going to move forward with the expedition. Because not only would this be a, a big chunk of funding, but it would also be a sign that this is a worthy expedition. So <laughs> that's we, pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I've not um, I've not heard of that grant before, but I will certainly uh, get that information from you, and we can add that to the show notes for anybody who might be thinking about uh, looking for funding as well. Definitely, and it is. I'm I'm gonna look at it. It is started by this Czech paddler, I believe, his name here, Maren, yes, Maren Medak. He is also a prolific expeditioner and really strong gifted paddler and wanted to inspire more people to push themselves and go on these adventures and fund them. So if, if anyone is interested, I like highly recommend applying. So we won it and then, we're, oh no, we, we actually have to do this. And so yeah, I actually told my job that I was planning on coming back and um, 
through the experience of being in Taiwan for six weeks, I just, it's kind of like a, a reset. And I don't want to jump too far forward, but I think sometimes if you find yourself straying from where you actually want to be in life, and then you have this radical time period where you actually are, you know, living exactly the way you want to be living in the place and all of your skills and training is being utilized and it's almost this prolonged flow state, it's, it's really hard to go back to that place you were in life where you didn't feel super fulfilled. So I actually ended up coming home and having a, a radical career pivot and not going back to my tech job. Um, yeah, that I hope that that's probably a lot more detail than you needed for the no, <laughs> expedition. That's, that's great. That's great. So it truly was life-changing for you. Mm-hmm. It definitely was. It was a combination of going through that process of planning an expedition and then doing it and then the connections we made and the people we met the connections within just folks being so generous with their knowledge and time. We reached out to Nigel Foster because he had done a lot of training and paddling in Taiwan. And just from reaching out to him about more information, we were connected with our boat sponsor for that, that trip, Point 65 Kayaks. He gave us a lot of critical information, introduced us to um, Jia Fang Chen, who had the, the Formosa kayaking school and was just he and his partner Yali were our lifeline and in Taiwan and it, it's just amazing how something just like unfolds and one door opens and that opens three doors and yeah just that the process as well as the experience was just really confirming in a lot of ways. So where did the name Fearless Formosa come from? I'm guessing it has something to do with the school? So that is a little bit of happenstance. So Taiwan is a, a country that is so nuanced and there's so much more that meets the eye. And I know it's increasingly in the news just based on what, what's happening with China and Hong Kong and, and just general geopolitical evolution. Um, but it's had a like, really and this is where the name Formosa comes in a, a really um, chaotic last like 400 years with, with colonialism of different types so uh, there were a lot of different indigenous groups that have lived in Taiwan and on Taiwan for a long time and even though it's a pretty small island it's there's a ton of diversity when it comes to cultures this was know around the time of the colonial period where there were the Dutch and of course the British that were all vying for control of the Pacific via I think it was the the Dutch East Indies Company and they were sailing past this island and there were you know of course there were the Portuguese here and the Spanish were here and they were all trying to do this giant land grab and I believe it was Portuguese traders who were like, look at that beautiful island, like beautiful Formosa Island. So for a long time on Western maps and charts, it was called Formosa, like the Isle of Formosa, uh, just as given a colonial name. And so uh, I love alliteration. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, it, it'll be still referred to as 
Formosa, even though on maps it's Taiwan or you know the Republic of China. You know if you're you know Olympic on the Olympics or on other maps. But uh, I think Fillers Formosa is just pretty catchy, and we wanted to give our you know something more referenceable uh, a name for our expedition. Fearless Formosa sounded a lot better than like Laura and Kelly's wild Taiwan adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I love the backstory of the Fearless Formosa. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read a quote from you. We'll surf our boats, explore lush seaside gorges, and of course eat in as many night markets as possible, all while seeking the best bubble tea in the remote corners of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the yeah, cent- I wrote that. <laughs> The central point of your trip seems to have been about food. So tell us about crazy, stupid noodles and bubble tea. (laughs) All those crazy, stupid noodles. Oh my gosh. So Taiwan has maybe one of the best food scenes in the world, in my opinion. And I know that's a really bold statement, but I, I love Chinese food. And I think in Taiwan, ingredients are so fresh and the expectation from Taiwanese people for food quality and flavor is just so high. I think if you can imagine an entire country of foodies, that's that's Taiwan. Like (laughs) no one escapes it. It's like in the culture to be really discriminating and to really appreciate delicious food. So we went into planning our trip knowing that. No and keeping that in mind, it was less about the mileage and pretty soon we realized we weren't going to be able to do a full circumnavigation just given how busy a lot of the ports on the western side are and also the increased militarization and just the posturing between China and Taiwan on the strait. And so with that in mind, we're like, okay, we're just doing the east coast. We're going to be able to cover a lot of mileage if we wanted to. This turned out to be problematic actually when when we actually started paddling and realized how much wind there was but knowing that we had a little bit more leeway we're like well let's actually take our time to enjoy the cultural aspect in step with pushing ourselves as and with the expedition side of it so we put time in place for you know spending extra days in Hualien spending extra days in Taidong um and also spending time teaching classes in this this town on the coast that had maybe some of the best seafood I've ever had in my life, Nanfang Ao. And it has a really old and well-known fish market there. And so just everything food-wise is next level. So it was impossible to not make that a part of our expedition. Um, as well as bubble tea in Taiwan is the... The originator of bubble tea and i'm not sure if you've had bubble tea john i've not so tell me what is bubble tea so bubble tea is a gift from the gods and <laughs> <laughs> it is it's basically just green tea or black tea and you combine that with milk and oftentimes it's not even real milk it's non-dairy creamer just because a lot of folks in taiwan and china across Asia are lactose intolerant and this actually has less lactose and you can get it with real milk too not gonna you know say that's not on the menu but it's really delicious it's super fresh tea and then you have these tapioca balls 
that are added to the mix. And so if you like uh, new textures and, and tea, it's probably for you, but it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> I, I hear you even had a bub bubble tea day hatch. Oh, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> one, of, one of the things I really wanted to do when we were testing out our boats was to like have bubble tea and I would put bubble tea in this, you know, that, that day hatch we had. And I was like, okay, Kelly, let's, let's try and go. And then quickly it wasn't working and salt water was pouring into the tea. So it was more of a idea than, than a reality. <laughs> and, um, I, I ended up having to drink it so fast that I got a little seasick. And so it was only one day that that hatch was truly a bubble tea hatch. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, how did you engage with the environment and the people? So we were, as I mentioned, like super lucky to be really well connected early on. The main point of connection we had was uh, with uh, Jafang and Yavi. And we would start planning our trip and then run our ideas by them. And um, they would say, okay, no, this is probably a place where you want to camp. This is not. But something to know about Taiwan's East Coast is that it is not super populated. There are some large towns, like Hualien, one of the largest towns in Taiwan is on the East Coast. But other than Hualien and Taidong, it's, it's a pretty sleepy coast, especially when you're starting from south to north. And the reason is there's a really vast mountain chain that runs north to south. And it's one of the, like, I think this part of the Pacific is very seismically active. The mountains are still growing in Taiwan, similar to lots of areas in Japan, Indonesia, and even across Southeast Asia. Uh, so we, we were fully uh, expecting, you know, landslides, earthquakes could happen. This side of the coast is often battered by typhoons. I listened to your episode with Jeff Allen and him talking about all the earthquakes and typhoons that were hitting during the course of his expedition. And yeah, it's almost like when you're paddling in this part of the world, it's it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And just, you know, we definitely saw a lot of remnants of landslides. And unfortunately, the country like struggles with a lot of uh, the, the land just moving <laughs> every, every minute. And it's really pronounced on the East Coast because uh, you have this really energetic ocean coming against these very verdant tall mountains there are moments on the trip where it was almost like we would look up and it felt like paddling the nepali coast almost that kind of supercharged green compared with this celeste beautiful water so a lot of folks don't know it's almost like this beautiful hawaii meets china meets Jap japan you know this beautiful island that environmentally it's very pristine and well cared for in a lot of areas on the east coast so i i hope that answers your question a bit better about the environment yeah i think i think you're right too I and mean, myself included uh, i think a lot of people would expect taiwan to the coast in taiwan to have been much more populated than you experienced oh yes you know there would be 
sometimes where we would have stretches where we you know, wouldn't see any homes, nothing, maybe a, a fishing shack here or there. Uh, there's a, a huge culture of fishing. And so people will assemble like a, a shack or a fishing shack on the precipice of this cliff. And you just think, how did people build that <laughs> and maintain it? And that would be some something that we would be the only sign of life for some days. And then we'd have other days where all of a sudden we'd paddle up and there'd be this huge military compound. There's such a, a culture of having to posture militarily, uh, especially when you have China looming right there. And so there were a lot of days where a military installation was um, all we saw. And a lot of these weren't on the map. They weren't on the chart. And all of a sudden you'd see this giant unfolding compound that blends into the hillside. And so, yeah, it was every, every day was a little bit different, but that was a constant, the, that military presence. So, so tell us how you connected with the people along the way. That was also wonderful. I think one thing to note about Taiwanese culture is you think, you know, generosity and warmth. But you go to Taiwan and that just totally recalibrates what you consider generous and warm. It's one of those countries where you leave your boat and you're, you're going in for water supplies at this small town. And you're like, oh, are our boats okay? Should we have brought our paddles? And you're kind of stressing out a little bit because there's a lot of people on the beach. And then you come back to your boats and somebody picked fresh flowers and put flowers on your boat. <laughs> it's like everywhere we went, people were wanting to treat us to a meal and hear our story and, you know, just take photos with us or try to offer us something. And it was just overwhelming how much generosity we experienced. One moment in particular, we were staying in Taidong in this like really cool little hostel that was that was new that friends of friends had opened and when we were in Taidong, they were like, you gotta call this person and they'll take care of you and they met us where we had landed and we had had a rough day on the water with just battling wind and we had to turn back and backtrack because this crossing we were planning to make was just, the waves were way too out of control and there was no place to land for a few miles so we were like, let's go back and they even though it was a longer drive for them, they picked us up and all of our gear and sweaty. And then they they took us home. And it was just like all of a sudden this outpouring of being taken care of. And then they're like, you know what? We're going to take you both to get massages. And so they took us to get <laughs> massages and they just were so warm and welcoming. And at, when the end of our, our time in Taidong, uh, we had met other people who were staying in the hostel and had these wonderful conversations with them. And it was our time to wake up at, you know, 4.30 a.m. to try and beat the wind and start, resume our expedition. And we woke up thinking it was just going to be this random driver who happened to it'd be convenient to take us to where we needed to be that morning. And it was actually like all 10 people who were staying in the hostel and they all got in cabs because they all wanted to give us a morning sunrise send off. And I was just so touched. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh, um, all of these folks were just awake to, to give us this wonderful send off. And 
they didn't need to do that. And that just typifies the kind of experience we had with Taiwanese people. We would, in Chinese, there's the phrase like, just big hearted or have like this generosity, da fang. Like we'd say like, oh, you're, you're too generous. And they would respond like, no, we're not, we're not generous. We're just Taiwanese. And that really encapsulates that, you know, that approach. That's pretty cool that they wanted to be uh, involved in your success. Oh, 100%. And they were, they were what made it a success. So, so did you camp along the way most of the time or hostels or, or how did you, what, what kind of arrangements did you have to make? So we were mostly camping. Um, and something to note about Taiwan is that there, you're allowed to camp on uh, public property, especially on these remote areas on the East Coast. So a lot of Coast Guard stations, and they're, they're pretty frequently installed a, they have fresh water and oftentimes showers and not all all of them could accommodate us. I think some of them, especially uh, the smaller Coast Guard posts that were mostly young men because there is this culture of civil service. So a lot of the Coast Guard became Coast Guard officers and members became um, and met were in like their early 20s, late teens. And this was like they had just graduated from high school and this was their post for their civil service, um, which uh, was was really, ended up having some like, there were some sweet moments because of that. But, you know, they uh, we would get to one military, or not military, but Coast, uh, Coast Guard station. We'd be like, oh, could we potentially take showers here? And it'd been like a few days and we were kind of haggard looking and unshowered and a little smelly. And they would just be confused because they're like, we, we don't know how to have women shower here. <laughs> so even though technically they had showers and they were accessible to seafarers and folks who needed some help, they, they'd just be confused how they could accommodate women. <laughs> <laughs> so for our own decency, sometimes we were uh, just given fresh water, which that was enough. But Camping was super easy, and a lot of times we could just pull up and find a, a beach. It's it's really a steep coast and really energetic, so we had a lot of spicy launches and landings. Ones where you would, the landings would be super super difficult. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Where you drive up the cliff, you think you've taken the biggest wave in, so you can get really high up on the bank on the burn. And then you rip your skirt and then you have to race the incoming wave before it sucks your boat back out. Um, And it gets really hard when you have these heavy boats. But the launches on those steep inclines were not that bad. Just being able to, like a giant slide, just zip down um, and punch through waves. But still, there'd be some days where you just know what would become and your heart would be racing the closer you get to your campsite or where you, where we decided to, to land, just thinking about that surf landing with a fully loaded boat. And you're like, woof, here we go. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the landings were rocky too. We we're pretty grateful to have plastic boats, even though they were slower. Yeah. But, so is there a big outdoor recreation culture there? So there, there definitely is. I think, 
Taiwan has so many beautiful mountains and super tall mountains and then also just incredible canyons, these beautiful marble canyons and the coastline is stunning and it's very, their community of out, up, their outdoor community is growing really fast as well. So in Taipei, when we started out, there's a lot of um, really wonderful day hikes that you can take the subway to. So a lot of Taiwanese will just go for, you know, weekend warrior day hikes. And then when it came to sea kayaking, that's also a growing community. Not only did we get help from the Formosa Kayaking School, and they've done an awesome job at bringing a lot of people into the sport, offering classes at a range of levels, but there's also a large club based in Taipei, and I want to say the, the coast, maybe around Jiufen, in that area, out like an hour outside of Taipei on the coast, and the Taiwan Kayakers Association, you can find them on Facebook. They are a wonderful hub of information. They have a container full of boats to help folks get interested um, and nurture their their skills development. So it's definitely growing. But one thing I should note is that uh, there's definitely a history of the government trying to limit how much people can access beaches, tall mountains. There's a real safety consciousness that is rooted in the philosophy of if you're not allowed to go, then you can't hurt yourself there. <laughs> so that's slowly being pushed back. But a lot of the beaches where we launched and camped and taught classes from at the beginning, the only in the 90s were people actually able and allowed to swim at those beaches. A lot of our friends and students who grew up in Taiwan said, you know, my whole life I was told to stay away from the ocean and that it was dangerous. And a lot of the beaches close to me were off limits. Like you could walk and look at the ocean, but you could never get in. And that's slowly changing, but it definitely has had an impact on all adventure sports. What is it that has uh, precipitated that change? I think there are a few different forces. One, I think there's just so much more demand. And if you see in other countries how access to mountains or the coast is given and, and there's a, a culture of safety and even resources to make sure that there's like proper training. I know a lot of kayakers have had to do lobbying for local towns and, and different areas for, for access. And that's been really successful, just having that critical mass of paddlers or hikers or climbers saying, look, we, we know how to do this safely and we have the skills to do it. And having that pattern replicate across the country. And I also think the other factor is foreigners and realizing that this is a, a huge draw from a, a tourism standpoint. And we need to find a way to provide access and do it in a safe way. So local paddlers, local adventure advocates, and then foreigners, there's there's really this push each year. More and more is becoming accessible. So you mentioned proper training, and I know that was one of the purposes of your trip, and one of the things you how you engaged with people was through teaching. So tell us about that and how you made those connections. Yes. So Kelly and I are both instructors. 
and we wanted to make teaching a uh, a pillar of our expedition of our time there partly because we wanted to meet a lot of local paddlers and at the same time give back there have been a, a lot of talented coaches who have visited and instructors and instructor trainers taiwan in the past and then there are also a lot of really talented local paddlers and local instructors um, yali and jafang are two amazing instructors as well as a lot of folks in the, the Taiwan Kayaking Association are, are really gifted instructors who are actively teaching. There's not a lot of opportunities for intermediate to advanced classes. And so there are some commonalities between the rock gardening and the dynamics of the Pacific coast in Taiwan, especially north, where it's a little more temperate rather than south where it's a little more tropical. Their commonality is with our coast here in Northern California. And so our goal was to offer classes around surfing and rock gardening that would really apply what we've learned from our coastline here in California to the Taiwanese coast. And so we wanted to offer those as a way to have that cultural exchange, that regional exchange, and it was wonderful. Did you offer those through local clubs or somehow else? We did. We offered those through Formosa Kayaking School um, in Nanfang Ao. Um, and it, they have a wonderful venue there. They have a, a really nice, safe harbor that's pretty protected from that Pacific swell that rolls in. If you were to paddle out of the harbor, you would reach this beautiful beach, this coastline. And there are all of these rock formations. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of the California coast, especially around Mendocino, except for 20 to 30 degrees warmer <laughs> with both the air and the ocean. The cool part as you move further south is not only are there more like arches and really neat rock formations that create this beautiful playground from a surfing and a, especially a rock gardening perspective. But you have this mountain range that runs east to west, and then there's another one that runs north to south. And there's the end of the range you can paddle to, and it's this really neat rock outcropping. And there's a system of caves that extend both north and south of this rock outcropping that you can sometimes access by boat, Sometimes you have to get out of your boat and access it by land, but it's just one of the most stunning places I've ever paddled. And so to be able to offer classes and, you know, have a local instructor there and, and all this local knowledge from our students to combine with, oh, like, you know, we describe a feature and they'd be like, oh, yes, I know exactly one that will let us try that move. And it was just the, the Formosa Kayaking School just was able to you know, attract these fabulous students. And it was just a really great exchange. So you've mentioned the complex complex coast a few times. Did you have uh, ready access to charts and other planning resources? So we were expecting a, a lot of charts and then we found nothing. So <laughs> um, especially like the, the West Coast, the coast that's facing mainland China, there there's a lot of 
really um, accurate charts and accessible charts for that side of the coast. There's not a lot of shipping traffic. There's not a lot of boat traffic other than shipping or fishing vessels on the East Coast. So we use Google Maps primarily. And honestly, that, that was probably more ideal than even if we had a chart because the land is shifting so quickly and there are landslides and typhoons. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we were able to see that from Google Earth in a way that you probably couldn't see from a chart. And the chart that we could find was of the entire East Coast. So didn't have nowhere near the granularity we need to scope out campsites or really perceive accurate distances when you take into account the nuances of the coast. And we were not let down by Google Maps and Google Earth. So <laughs> huge props to um, those satellite resources. <laughs> Amazing what resources we have available at our fingertips now. And I was shocked at how accurate a lot of those distances were. It was pretty spot on. So what was the weather like? The weather uh, is pretty variable. Uh, we were there in May and June and a, a little bit of late April. So it was to avoid the hottest season and also to avoid when typhoons would likely start up, you know, as, as you get deeper into summer. Uh, so we started in Taipei and it was a little on the, the wet, rainy and chilly side. But then as we started to teach more classes and get out of Taipei, it quickly became pretty warm. And when we started our expedition out of Kanding in the south, it was full-blown tropical. So 80 plus degrees, the water was fabulous, like mid-70s. Like pretty, pretty dreamy conditions, except for when you're paddling all day and you're having to wear long sleeves and gloves and just contending with that fierce like, tropical sun. Some days we got heat rash and we're like, this is one of the first times in my life I had like heat rash. But then you combine that with this wet neoprene spray skirt and you're like, when will this ever go away? <laughs> so it was like a blessing and a curse. I think we were coming from California. We were just so excited to not be wearing dry suits all the time that we didn't anticipate any of the hot weather problems you get <laughs> from paddling in a tropical place. How did that change as you traveled? As we returned to the north, it started to get rainy again. And even though it was warm, the rain combined with the wind really became a challenge. So towards the end, the last week, there were a lot of cold days. And we, we the further north we got, we brought our neoprene. And I, I say cold, but I'm actually having air quotes because <laughs> it was still in the 70s. Okay. <laughs> but you combine, you know, a wet neoprene top with, you know, 70 degree weather, but with even just, you know, five miles an hour, five mile an hour winds and you're just starting to get a little chill if you don't, if you aren't active. But that also was, you know, just a, a seasonal thing. The area where we were in the summer, you know, where we we're starting to get cold, that also gets pretty tropical feeling and warm pretty quickly. So... We, we were given the information that the Kiroshiro current 
which runs along the East Coast, runs from south to north. But we didn't get the information that the prevailing winds during that time run north to south. So if we had it to do over again, we would definitely go north to south, not south to north. <laughs> so I understand you had an experience with the typhoon. So we we didn't have a direct experience with the typhoon. We did go into one town expecting it to be a, a bustling town. This was actually one of our first nights and it was a little bit of a remote village and it was really clear that this village had been hit hard recently by a typhoon. And so a lot of the, the streets were still covered with debris or some debris, had, a lot of debris had just been pushed to the side. There was um, kind of a cute little B&B that we were interested in checking out, just paddling up, that was like not in operation, partly destroyed. It was just interesting to see just like how these small towns, it takes a lot to come back, especially if you're, you're hit hard and you're completely inundated. So that, that was eye-opening to see just this town's infrastructure completely altered and them still in a, a state of rebuilding probably months later. But luckily, no typhoons. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so what was the wildlife experience like? Oh, my goodness. It's, it was pretty dreamy, especially in, in the south in Kanding and Jalashui and a lot of these smaller towns on the, the southeast coast. There are a lot of turtles, so uh, we would be paddling around and then see these like little eyes and this little head watching us. And as soon as you made eye contact, they would just they would just dip down and and hide. But I want to say the first three days we saw ten plus turtles per day. And another really cool thing is they have flying fish on the coast, so we would be paddling along and all of a sudden there would be this flurry of fish that would just like, rise up and just surge ahead of us and like be flapping their wings. And I had never seen flying fish before and that was, that was really incredible to be in the middle of a school of flying fish. Um, and there are also dolphins and they're curious dolphins and it was just beautiful. And then there was this one part of the coast where there are monkeys and I love monkeys, but I also don't trust monkeys. <laughs> so <laughs> we were we were doing this side hike through this really neat archaeological site, and there are a lot of monkeys around. And the monkeys are, you can tell, used to being fed. And one got close to us, and you know, it probably was fine, but we, you know, it was kind of embarrassing how much we like screamed and ran away from the monkey because the, we thought the monkey was trying to take away Kelly's camera. <laughs> <laughs> to think of like at that point in our trip, everything we had been through in terms of, you know, really sketchy landings and launches. And we had this one night where there was this kind of creepy drunk guy harassing us on the beach. Super, that was a complete aberration from our experience with most Taiwanese. And I think it was just, you know, a weird situation, but it was embarrassing that we had gone through all of this. And then this monkey just coming at us was what freaked us out more than anything else on the trip <laughs> because of our camera. We didn't want it to take our camera. <laughs> what kind of distance did you cover on the trip? 
So we were really ambitious uh, according to our plans. And we were like, you know, we're going to, our baseline is probably going to be 20 mile days and we'll just really smash those out. And then after about day three, the wind started to pick up and there were days where it would reach noon and we'd be fighting maybe 20 miles per hour wind, um, a headwind. And only one day did we have a tailwind. The rest were, I want to say 50% of the time, if not more, we had a pretty gnarly headwind. So that slowed us down a lot. And that's the reason why I say if we go back and do it again, it'll definitely be north to south. It was just really humbling some days to be, you know, we would see where we wanted to land and we would look at some natural ranges and there were there were some days where we were like, you know, it's taking two hours to go just a mile and a half, just really fighting. It forces you to have better technique <laughs> to really dig, but there were some really exhausting days and Pretty soon, like pretty early on, we just started saying, you know what, there's no way around this. We're going to have to start waking up at 3 a.m. and to try and start on the water around 4.30. So for probably the last three you know, weeks, we just embraced that we needed to start right before the sun rose to avoid the wind. And that enabled us to do more distance. And so our goal was typically... 16 to 20 most days but when the wind picked up and there was nothing to do about it we were like you know 10's good for today that's that's good that's good <laughs> rather than to to push ourselves in the ground you mentioned uh, some sketchy launches and landings uh, tell us about one in particular mm, there was one where uh well there were a few there, there are two that really come to mind one was at this really steep, rocky beach. And we were sitting and waiting and watching close to shore for a long time. And the hard part about this beach was not only was there a really steep, rocky landing, there was some big swell that day. And it was just, I'm sure you've seen it many times where you'd have this big bulge and it would release all of its energy and then washing machine and you just hear the rocks aggressively being sucked out and to make matters worse there is a big restaurant right on the coast and everybody was watching us <laughs> so, so you got an audience <laughs> we had an audience and it was you know this uh very touristy restaurant where a lot of mainland chinese tourists are brought and and so we had a lot of mainland chinese tourists that were very invested. There were a lot of camera phones and that just added to the pressure. And so Kelly came in and picked a, a big one and washed really high and then ripped the skirt and did the scramble. And like, we, we oftentimes needed help to pull it because our boats were super heavy at this point still. And so pulling them sometimes up this steep embankment, you can only get to a certain point. So we'd pull it up pretty high and then wait for both of us to be on land for us to really move the boat completely up and into a safer zone. So she came in and landed and ripped the skirt and started to pick it up. And then I picked the next wave and that sat 
and I, I thought it was going to be sufficiently big enough and I probably delayed you know a millisecond more than I should have taking my skirt and I remember the second that I lifted my weight from the cockpit I looked between me and it had that look of gloom as my boat just was sucked out between my legs <laughs> <laughs> and all the camera phones were going and I just watched my boat being taken aggressively by this longshore current and I'm just was like oh and so everyone was cheering and laughing and clapping as I had to go and swim for my boat and remount and land again (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was one I think that stood out because we had an audience another one was just this really we were at this um really neat kind of eco park just south of Hualien and the the waves had really picked up and we had one of our our students join us a really wonderful gentleman named Neil and so it was a little bit it was a little bit intimidating not not just having to take care of ourselves for this launch and and really help each other and these you know it I felt like it was six to seven foot day of just dumping surf at this beach all night you could hear the waves building and pounding and this sense of dread for what you know you have to do in the morning is coming and then we also were feeling responsible for neo and we're like okay we we can't let neo down like we have to help him so we helped kelly launched and then i helped neo launch and then it came to me and you know there's always that feeling of being the last one on the beach and launching just like please pick a good one, please pick a good one. But the timing for that launch, I, I want to say we spent an hour like watching and trying to learn and pick the best spot just because it was going to be such a beat down and it was a little bit, there were random rock outcropping. So it was the worst combination of, you know, if you are upside down getting served backwards, you don't know what you're going to hit. So luckily everyone was fine, but that was one of those launches where you were just like, ooh, we need to pump the brakes and go slow and know what's happening on this one. What was your biggest learning from the trip? Oh my. I I think what I really appreciated was how much learning about myself, you know. There's definitely I think when you're on an expedition like this, especially in a foreign country, your mind and your body is on hyperdrive. This heightened sense of always needing to be aware, surges of adrenaline, uh, trying to take in all of this new information and apply a sense of situational awareness. And there's also that inward piece too, of like stepping aside from yourself and watching yourself navigate this new environment and this new situation you're in. And And then it also was heightened by the fact that Kelly and I are, you know, we're really good friends, but we're, we're opposites and I'm hyper extroverted. She's hyper introverted. I, um, I like to plan up to a certain point, but allow for spontaneity and, and Kelly really wants to have not just fully fledged plans, but a plan B and C fully fledged. And it was really neat to learn a lot more about myself in relation to being wet and tired and 
when you're like pushed to the edge, what kind of person do you become? And then how do you show up for other people when you're in, in that situation? And, and then how do you watch somebody else like engage with that and that kind of counterpoint and learning about yourself when you're pushed to the edge and kind of seeing like who you, you really are in those situations. And there were things that I was like really proud of about myself and I, I felt really tenacious in a lot of ways. And then there were other things where I was 28 when I did this, this expedition. And I, I real, it really became apparent the ways in which I still needed to grow up. (laughs) I think is one way to phrase it. It forced me to get a little bit more serious and a lot, a lot of aspects of my life and to have more conviction and less fear. I think that's part of why I came home and I think I was staying in an industry in these roles that weren't fulfilling out of fear. And so honestly, that was the biggest lesson to just stop making fear-based decisions as, as much as you can. I think I still do it, but it's, it's when it really became an awareness for me. Aside from changing the direction and going north to south, what would you do different if you did it again? You know, I think... I would, that's, that's a really good question. I think I would try to fully circumnavigate and I, I definitely am not advocating for breaking the law and not following procedure when it comes to crossing ports. And on the West coast, we were told that you need an escort, either a coast guard or a military escort when you're crossing ports or you know, crossing heavily militarized zones. And I think that still holds true, but I think that really intimidated us. And once we were in Taiwan, and especially building those connections with local Taiwanese paddlers, it became clear that if we wanted to spend more time there, we probably could, could do it more feasibly. So I think there's a lot of utility in, you know, giving yourself more time before hitting the water in a place. So I think going back, I would love to fully circumnavigate, go from north to south on the east coast, and then south to north on the west coast, um, and not be as worried about being independent, because Kelly and I were very worried about being a a burden and over-relying on folks, and you know, not wanting resupplies and so forth. But at the end of the day, I think one of the most beautiful outcomes of our journey was just embracing how much people wanted to support us and be a part of our journey. And I think allowing for more time to to do the West Coast would have would have done that. So maybe maybe we'll go back and do the whole the whole island. <laughs> well with that in mind, what's the next big objective for you? Mm. You know, I'm I'm a fan of your podcast and it's hard to not listen to an episode and scheme and dream because there's so many amazing exploits and expeditions that you featured. And one, one thing that has really been sticking with me recently is uh, doing the entire coastline of a country. Um, I, I was really fascinated with circumnavigation and I still am, but I think that there's something so rich that you glean from seeing every inch of a coast, um, even if you can't circumnavigate. 
and my my partner is French and I'm trying to work on my French and just better understanding that country. In the last few months, I thought, how wonderful would it be to paddle the entire French coastline and get to know the country's coast that way? Because it's so different and so dynamic, spanning, what, three different seas. It's, it's a lot, but something that could be done through sections, you know. But that's what's caught my attention recently. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I'm glad uh, you've been inspired. Another kind of, an, I guess, an odd question. If you could paddle with one person, who would you most like to paddle with and why? Mm. Oh, my gosh. That's a really hard question. Um, that's like an extrovert's dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> Can I choose 20? <laughs> oh, my. You know, I think when you spend that much time day in, day out with someone and build that teammateship, it's hard for me to imagine doing an expedition or like most w without Kelly. Um, and I think because we're so different, but yet seek the same adventure and the same things, it's just a really wonderful dynamic. So I think she is, she's still one of my favorite people to paddle with. And I always learn so much from paddling with her. It's not always easy because we're so different, <laughs> but it's always rewarding. So I think I would still choose to paddle with Kelly. All right. Who supported you on the trip and beyond? Oh my goodness. So many people. Definitely huge props to Yali and Jafang of Formosa Kayaking School. They went in above and beyond to help us find lodging. Whenever we needed extra gear, they were helping. They introduced us to so many wonderful members of the paddling community and the community in Manfangao. They drove us five hours in our kayaks and gear down to Kunding to begin our expedition. It's just hard to imagine doing this trip without them um, and the support of Formosa Kayaking School. And, and my partner Julian as well, he was super supportive and even flew out and joined us for the last week. And two of my close friends from college were living in Taipei at the time and they also opened their apartment to us and helped us with local arrangements. And if we had questions about something, Marshall and Caroline are their names and they would go help find the answers. So it really did take a village of support as well as Kokatat for giving us amazing gear, Point sixty five for our boat sponsor. The Whiskey 16 ended up being the perfect craft for this expedition. And um, also uh, Werner for giving us those paddles. It really was a village. Very cool. So how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions for you? So I uh, am very active on Instagram and Facebook. So uh, you can find me by searching my name, uh, Laura Zulliger. Uh, and on Instagram, that's Laura underscore Zulliger. And <clears throat> I, I teach through Cali Collective or California Water Sports Collective. And we teach all year round sea kayaking and surf kayaking in the Bay Area. 
and our website is cwwc um, cwwcollective.com um, whitewater stand-up paddleboarding especially sup whitewater sea kayaking we're expanding a lot so that's where i teach through all right well we'll be certain to include those in the uh, in the show notes so people can connect more and we'll also get some of the planning resources from you and we'll include that information in the show notes so people can learn more about, about paddling in taiwan and we'll also include information for formosa kayak school fabulous so one other question, it's a question that I have that we ask all of our guests, um, and that is who else would you like to hear as the future guest on Paddling the Blue? So, of course, my expedition partner for Fearless Formosa would be my uh, recommendation first, Kelly Marie Henry. She recently moved to Wales, and I think she has a lot of insight from making that switch from being in California to, to go and kayaking and learning an entire new environment in Anglesey. It would also just be fascinating to hear her perspective of Fearless Formosa. <laughs> and then also Cyril Deramo, who is a local uh, Bay Area paddler, super strong, super gifted, one of the most motivating people I've ever met. And he is resuming his expedition plans to go from California to Hawaii solo by kayak, unsupported. He is just unstoppable, and I think he'd be a great guest. Excellent. Well, I'll work with you to get uh, connections to Kelly and Cyril, and we'll see if we can get them on the show. So, Laura, it's been wonderful. I appreciate you sharing Fearless Formosa with you and your experience along the way, as well as your history as a paddler. Um, it's been great talking to you, so I appreciate your time. I appreciate yours as well. Thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. There are so many great things to take away from Laura's interview. For me, her experience reaffirmed that a simple paddle trip can truly be life-changing. Not only did Fearless Formosa lead to a career change for Laura, but I loved how it taught her to recognize and alter her decision-making process to not rely solely on decision-making based on fear, but on opportunity. Our next show will feature Murdy Campbell, and Murdy served on the Stornoway Lifeboat for 30 years and is a legend in the Outer Hebrides paddling scene. We're going to talk about some of his exploits in that area and about one place that has fascinated me ever since Bonnie Perry first shared her pictures with me several years ago. And by the way, if you haven't heard Bonnie's episode yet, she joined me for episode number 40. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. 
And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.